It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. I'm Kathy Sabokin from the Element FM newsroom, and you're listening to Moment of Truth. In 2013, Godfred Ade Namiche suffered an attack at the hands of Constable Trevor Lindsay, a member of the Calgary Police Force, in a case of what's being called apparent racial profiling and unlawful detention. And more incidents followed. And in 2018, the Calgary Police Service was involved in more shooting deaths in that year than each of the Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Chicago, and New York Police Departments in 2018. Well, a new documentary examines what's been happening. It's called Above the Law. And joining me are Godfred Adenamiche, along with the film's directors, Mark Serpa-Francoeur and Rabiner Uppelt. So, Godfred, just... To, for those of us who haven't exactly followed the story, can you take us back to what happened back in 2013 and just give us a little recap? Oh, man. <laughs> How to do this again? Um, so I was pretty much um, driving some friends home from a party. Um, we got stuck in the snowbanks. Um, driving by was two officers. Um, they pulled up. Um, they harassed us. They took me somewhere. Um, away from the car. They dumped me up there. Um, I was cold, so I called now for help. Um, 15 minutes later, officially they arrived, and then he pushed me to the ground. I got up, tried to run. He chased me, put handcuffs on me, and just beat me up. And after that, I was, I was charged with assaulting the police officer, and I was acquitted. Oh, my goodness. Now, what happened after that? Did you press charges? Well, I filed a complaint, um, I believe, a month after the, after the incident. And um, the complaint is still not concluded. It's still going on. All these years later, what, what has taken so long? I have no idea. As far as I know, they just keep dragging this case on. They just keep dragging it on. I can just jump in on the subject of the complaint. It's, it's one of the aspects of the story that's so disturbing in Godfrey's case and, and many others in Calgary is just how long it takes uh, for uh, the Calgary Police Service to resolve um, complaints from the public. According to former Chief Chaffin, the system was designed to be resolved. You know, these are supposed to be turned around in a matter of months, and here we are six and a half years later. And uh, what's so disturbing, too, is in Godfrey's case that um, the officer, the, one of the officers in question uh, went on to... Uh, uh, to hurt somebody else. So, you know, had there been a, a timely response to Godfrey's complaint, you would think that that could have been avoided. Well, meanwhile, what happened to Constable Trevor Lindsay? This is part of the issue. Uh, he, despite Godfrey's complaint, which, as he mentioned, he filed uh, almost to a month to the day after the, um, after the incident, he continued to work uh, his regular beat. And um, uh, it, it didn't come out until uh, early 2017, when charges were filed against him in an, in an entirely different incident, that around the time of Godfrey's trial, which we're talking now mid 2015, he had um, and has now been convicted of aggravated assault uh, in a in a different incident of a of a gentleman also in handcuffs. So there seems to be a direct uh, through line there between not responding to the complaint and somebody else uh, in that case ending up with a, a fractured skull, a brain bleed, and a permanent injury that. Uh, his family um, and a former attorney see as potentially co- uh, connected with his eventual uh, death some months later of, uh, of a fentanyl overdose. Well, yeah, Mark, so your film centers on several of these cases, one being Godfrey, and then is another one of the subjects 
the case you're talking about right now? That's correct. Yeah, it's the uh, Robert, um, sorry, Daniel Haworth uh, was the uh, the other gentleman in question who uh, was assaulted by the same officer as uh, as Godfrey. And the third case that we look at in the film is the uh, the, the fatal uh, shooting uh, of Anthony Heffernan during a, um, I mean, classic is not maybe the way to put it, but during a sort of a typical uh, wellness check gone wrong in which uh, an unarmed man was uh, shot and, and killed by, uh, there was five officers, one of whom uh, shot him in, uh, in his hotel room uh, back in 2015. I just wanted to make it clear that the current system, you know, to hold um, cops accountable for their, for their bad actions is, is broken and it needs to be fixed. And it seems like um, the prosecutors are, who are supposed to be working in our interest, the public interest, is um, protecting these bad officers from getting charged. And I think that's the reason why these cops are just running around doing whatever they feel like they want to do and nothing is going to happen to them. So I just want to back up a little bit. And I wanted to ask Rabinder or Mark, what caused you to dive in and film a documentary about this whole issue? Because you've got several subjects over, over quite a long time span. Just wondering what the connection was for you. Yeah, so we were both, Mark and I, born and raised in Calgary. And when we met Godfrey, we were totally appalled when we heard about what happened in his case. And when the evidence backed up everything he was saying and we realized what had actually taken place that the crown prosecutor saw fit to prosecute Godford for assault instead of one of these officers who had done these things to him. We were totally appalled. And, and at first the film was really going to be centered around Godford. But then when the news came out that the same officer had assaulted another person and was charged and, and did go on to be uh, convicted of that assault, the aggravated assault of Daniel Howarth, we we knew that we had to expand the focus of the story to look more at the general accountability issues, what's happening in Calgary, and, and why there are so many incidents that don't uh, result in charges for officers, that uh, you have so many police shootings as well in Calgary that it, it was actually quite shocking to us that we were looking at a police department where no one was really paying attention to what was going on. And we decided that... Uh, the time was right. And, and for us, it's our hometown and we really care about it. And we wanted to make sure that the police force, the same police force that deals with our family and our friends is being held to account. And, and this film is really uh, an effort to that, uh, to that end. And were you already working as documentary filmmakers or did this propel you into the profession? Uh, no, we've been, uh, you know, uh, Rabinder and I, we actually met as uh, as far back as grade four growing up in, in Calgary, and we've been friends ever since. And we developed an interest in high school and kind of took us about 10 years to figure out how to actually uh, work professionally in documentary. But we've been, uh, since we, we did um, MFAs at Ryerson in documentary media in 2011 to 2013. So since then, we've been uh, working and we've done mainly... Uh, work on immigration, a lot of stuff on uh, elderly folks. Um, this is sort of our first uh, bigger kind of uh, investigative piece. And how did you meet Godfrey? So we were introduced to Godfrey by uh, Joan Bloomer, who was his former, uh, who was his defense attorney when, uh, when he was on trial for assaulting an officer. And, um, you know, she uh, basically uh, flagged his case for us as uh, one that um, had so many things going on. And it actually continues to, to astound just like how many 
different points there were that things uh, went wrong. I think people will be, it's not just the assault. It's just that, that again, that kind of, we, it's been described as this urban starlight tour, um, this really seemingly capricious uh, ticket that was issued to Godfrey, uh, you know, of being public intoxication, despite the fact there was no evidence to back that up. Um, so many things. And that was uh, how we got into the case was through his defense attorney. And it's, as uh, Ravinder was saying, has sort of snowballed into this bigger story that at the time we really, you know, we had, we didn't see coming this bigger story about the Calgary police service. Well, what has shocked you most about the Calgary police force? Uh, you know, I think that for us, what's been so disturbing is, you know, you come into this, I think us and uh, many Canadians, perhaps naively, I have a, have a fair degree of confidence in the, the functioning of our public institutions, the accountability mechanisms, things like transparency, and I think what has been so disturbing to us is just to see, uh, at least in, in the cases we've looked at, in the context we've looked at, how fragile um, those mechanisms can be and how easy it is. And Godfrey's case is such a powerful example of this, of how easy it is for things to go wrong and, and apparently how, um, you know, how easy it is for those, uh, you know, uh, bad actors, so to speak, to, um, to continue. So, yeah, I think that's been very troubling. For us, I, it really does extend beyond just what the police does. I mean, Godfrey's case is the thing that horrifies me in some ways the most is that Crown prosecutors in Calgary looked at the video and decided that charging him with assaulting an officer was the right move when his lawyer repeatedly asked them to dismiss those charges after seeing the video. They just continued. And I find that really just abhorrent because these are the people who are supposed to look at these things and make sure that there's a high enough standard of proof that they're not just prosecuting innocent people. And yet in Godford's case, that's exactly what they did. So I think the accountability really does have to stretch to Crown prosecutors, to the other accountability mechanisms. And then if you compare Godford's case, where they went ahead with this prosecution, to the case of Anthony Heffernan, where the Crown, despite recommendations from ACERT, which rarely ACERT is the Alberta police watchdog that looks into serious incidents, including shootings, ACERT rarely recommends charges. But despite the recommendation from, a from ACERT, uh, they're finding that uh, there were reasonable grounds to believe an offense or offenses had been committed. The Crown Prosecution Service declined to bring charges against the officer, Constable Maurice McLaughlin, in that case, even though we have an unarmed man whose hotel room door is being broken down and he's shot three times in the head and once in the chest. So the unequal application of justice by the Crown prosecutors, for me, is the most disturbing thing, actually. It's even more disturbing than the behavior of the police, because this is the, these are the people who we trust to hold the police accountable. They're the ones who have to bring the charges eventually if we're going to have these police officers prosecuted for wrongdoing. And when they are so apparently negligent in their duty and have such an unequal application of the standard of the law, it really, I think, creates a situation where you have... Um, a very unfair situation, especially for victims. If you look at my video, you look at uh, Daniel Howard's video, there's no difference, you know? There's no excuse that we both getting beat up in handcuffs. So um, the fact that my file was sent to the Edmonton Crown Prosecutors and they said um, there's not enough evidence to charge the officer, that's, that's very upsetting. That's, that's very disturbing. It's, it's a shame, you know? Do you think all of this points to some sort of systemic racism? Yes, yes. That's exactly what I was going to say after that. Because the fact that you look at my video, I'm the guy he beat up first. I filed a complaint. Nothing was done about it. No charges laid against him. And then 
he goes out a year or so after, beat up a white guy, and they were too quick to charge him with assault, and the case is almost done, and my case is still going, so that, I'm left in nothing to believe, but the systemic racism going on here, and we have to address that. It's, it's something that needs to be addressed. Mark, you want to weigh in on that? It's challenging, and in Godfrey's case, it's not like we have the officers saying specifically, I am doing these things, you know, or we're doing these things because of your race. That being said, uh, there's a number of elements of the story, and we, you know, we can only get into so much in the film, but in, going back to Godfrey's 911 calls that we see as problematic, and uh, Godfrey's psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Stephanie Mason, who practices in Calgary, she comments on this. She just, in the film, she says, I have a very hard time believing that had that been my son out there, my, my, my white son, you know, that this story would have gone in the same direction. And certainly, uh, I think that uh, members of uh, racialized communities, Indigenous, Black, and other in, in Canada, certainly um, uh, are, are feeling like, um, you know, and their allies, of course, are, are looking at these incidents and, and, and really calling into question uh, what, what role race is playing. And again, the, the, the statistics, the numbers, uh, to the extent that they do exist, I mean, are, are in and of itself also very troubling and, and support uh, some of these concerns. Yeah, how so? Well, we see in Calgary, I mean, it's just disproportionately high numbers of, uh, of, of black and indigenous people in particular that are, um, you know, that are having interactions with law enforcement. And, um, and again, you know, uh, part of the challenge too, and, you know, ACERT recently, there was a question, ACERT, again, the Alberta Serious Incident uh, Response Team, the police watchdog was asked whether or not, um, you know, they basically rejected the notion that it would be important for them um, to be collecting race-based data on, on their investigations. So I, I don't know, I think the public has a, has certainly a, a reason to be concerned and, um, and is wanting more answers about these things. Right. I think often, as you mentioned earlier, Canadians look south of the border and think incidents like the assault on George Floyd don't happen here, but clearly this film above the law tells us a totally different story altogether. The tendency has been in Canada to, to just look south and, and feel comforted that things are so much worse down there and we're doing a relatively good job of making sure everything is in order and, and down there is where they have the problems. But we were shocked to learn when we crunched the numbers that in, Cal uh, in 2018, the Calgary Police Service shot and killed more people than either the Toronto or the New York and or Chicago Police Departments in the year 2018. And, you know, New York and Chicago are the two biggest police forces in the United States. The notion that in Calgary, there would be reason to shoot and kill more people than either of those two cities is, I mean, it's astonishing. It's overwhelming. I, I, I don't think that people even realize that, that that was something that was happening or that was happening on such a scale that uh, it could, it could uh, surpass those numbers. And uh, so much of the purpose of us making this film is to get Canadians to just realize there is an issue here that we need to address. There's a serious issue in terms of police accountability and, and how police are interacting when they feel some sort of threat or, or just even when they're going in for wellness checks. I mean, how are they interacting with citizens? How are they treating people like Godford when they need help? And is it right? And is this what we want our police services to be doing? I think that we're trying to raise these questions in a Canadian context. Well, it sounds like since this incident back in 2013, between then and now, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like no changes have been made to the Calgary Police Service. Is that correct? You know, there's, uh, I mean, Roger Chaffin came in in 2015, and this was somebody who I think uh, made some efforts to uh, reform things. Certainly, uh, for example, the policy of naming police officers who are charged 
uh, one of the things we saw is that there was a lot of pushback from the officers that um, that this should be the case. Of course, uh, you know, me- members of the public, it's a, you know, when somebody is charged, it's, it's a matter of public record. So uh, it, I think, behooves us to know that kind of information. Um, I think that, it, it, again, it's tough to say. What we've seen is that, um, you know, one of the things that they've been trying to do is increase their, uh, the, the diversity of their force. And, you know, those efforts perhaps uh, supposedly now are starting to bear some fruit. But again, we've just seen incident after incident uh, in the ensuing years. And, and it's, uh, they are still almost on a daily, certainly a weekly basis. And now that we have body cam footage, Calgary Police Service was the first in the country to uh, implement across their department body cam footage. We're continuing to see a number of, uh, of disturbing uh, incidents, including, for example, recently the uh, violent arrest of a teenager um, and just really vile uh, swearing at him by these officers. And again, this is despite them being well aware that they're being recorded. So it really, um, this sort of apparent kind of climate of, uh, of impunity and a culture of sort of us versus them or whatever the dynamics that are going on. I mean, uh, and, it, you know, just again, following the news, it doesn't seem like that's gone away. You're listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Elements FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in for David Moses. We'll be back after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on Element FM 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app. And my guests right now are Godfred Ade Namiche and Mark Serpa Francoeur and Rabiner Uppel, and they are all a part of the new documentary called Above the Law. And it's spotlighting cases of excessive force in Calgary that reflect some deep rooted problems nationwide. Now, I do want to ask as a result of just doing a, a little microscopic look at the Calgary Police Service. Did you unearth anything else about the rest of Canadian police services in general? Well, one thing that we, uh, that we discovered is that Canada doesn't keep any significant records or, or there's no national database of police shootings, for example, and also that most police forces and also oversight watchdog bodies don't collect race-based data. So, we're left in a situation where on so many of these questions, we don't have clear answers and we're sort of relying on, on people like us or other journalists to really spend sometimes weeks and months doing freedom of information requests and trying to piece together this information when really it should be something that the, the federal government collects. I know that in Australia, they have a recording program when, when a police officer uses a firearm, they, they make note of it. And, and there's no reason why Canada can't also implement a policy like that. And, and also in terms of race-based data, I mean, it, you know, there, it's a double-edged sword in some ways where, you know, you don't want people to be, uh, to, to have their privacy concerns and things like that. But if we don't know that communities are being over-policed, how can we possibly address that situation? So I think we have to find a balance in Canada where we're collecting information that's, that's relevant. You know, it's really interesting that your documentary comes out just in the wake of the George Floyd killing and all of the protests that have been happening globally. Do you think or hope that between all of that and your documentary that something will be done for a more racially sensitive police force in Calgary? I think this whole um, Black Lives Matter thing is a powerful movement. I think it's going to, with this documentary, is going to trigger, I hope it's going to trigger some sort of 
reform in the in the justice system and you know in the in the police force and how they they handle complaints and everything. I hope this this documentary is going to be an eye opener for a lot of people, and um, hopefully it's going to trigger some change. Uh, forget about five years ago when we started this this project, but you know, go back five weeks. I mean, just the the degree to which the public dialogue uh, has evolved around these issues is really remarkable. Uh, we're in an entirely different place now. And um, certainly, I mean, maybe there's a division between generations, but I mean, you know, again, Canadians are really paying attention and are asking for, um, for change here. So I think now it's, uh, it's going to be a question of whether or not that, how, how municipal, how provincial, how federal uh, bodies react to that and whether or not that, um, that pressure is sustained. We know that, um, you know, major social uh, and policy reform certainly doesn't happen overnight. And sometimes, you know, there's lots of things we're still waiting on here. But, but uh, you know, I mean, we always say, like, if, if Godfrey can be optimistic after what he's been through, that uh, things are going to change. I mean, what right do we have uh, not to be optimistic as well? We certainly, I think, need to um, to keep agitating and um, and and examining these these problems and, and improving them because it's just, again, we cannot uh, we cannot accept the current uh, status quo. Now, Godfrey, I think it's great. You're getting support, obviously, from Mark and Rabiner from the documentary about the long. Are you yeah. getting support from the public as well? Yeah, the public the public is very excited um, for this documentary. They can't wait for this to come out. Um, I have a lot of support from, from people in Calgary, my friends, family. I think this documentary is going to be great. I'll just add, you know, Godfrey and, and uh, his, his attorney, Tom Engel, were on uh, CBC News television uh, in Calgary last night. And this is, again, it was twinned with a piece on uh, hearings that are happening in city council about, uh, a bit, you know, policing and beyond sort of discrimination issues. So um, there's certainly some movement. We'll see how the, the press continues to respond. I mean, um, uh, it's been quite enthusiastic so far, uh, at least the interest in discussing these issues. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to contrast uh, or to look at, you know, now in the realm of social media, we know there's a lot of uh, polarization out there, but, uh, you know, we're not dealing with a uniformity of opinion. There is a, uh, I think just like we have, we talk about a divided mindset, you know, in the police officers that there's an us and them mentality. I think the population, uh, the public splits in a similar way. There are people that really see themselves on one side of this thing or the other. And it's, um, you know, if people are interested uh, they can look at, uh, you know, for example, on our on our Facebook page, there are just really uh, some of it quite uh, horrific, I find, in terms of the the racial uh, prejudice and the presumptions that are made about uh, uh, about certain things. But the debates that are happening there, again, it says it says a lot about, I think, the, the divisions in our in our society. Well, let's talk about your documentary and where it's headed. Where can we see it? So, um, so this is a film that's uh, commissioned by CBC POV, uh, which is a strand of CBC Docs. So Saturday nights at 8 p.m. local time across the country, other than in the Maritimes, which uh, will have their own screening um, in the future. And then simultaneously, it'll be available uh, for free online for all Canadians through uh, CBC Gem or through the CBC Docs uh, page. And that'll be up uh, also on the weekend. So, um, you know. It's really uh, remarkable to have that kind of access as filmmakers to, to the public. And uh, we're really hoping that, um, that people tune in and, um, you know, and it's, we're very pleased to have had this commission from CBC and to be doing this kind of uh, more, I think, um, kind of in-depth uh, storytelling uh, and dealing with, again, challenging issues. It's easy to, uh, you know, stick to more, uh, 
pedestrian subjects. And this is a, you know, it's, this is a controversial one. So we're very uh, pleased that it's going to be getting out there in the way that it will. Yes, absolutely. And it took you five years to create the documentary? Well, when you say it like that, it makes it sound like we've been lazing about. Lazing about <laughs> five years. I mean, one thing that we didn't expect was to get to the end of this and still not have some of these complaints and Godfrey's complaint in particular fully resolved. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's quite shocking that, that the, the complaint process <laughs> somehow is still unfolding and they're still investigating. And I mean, it really just brings home for us how messed up that system is that this could possibly possibly still be going on why would it take so long I'm very suspicious do they hope yeah. it would play? well i'm not going nowhere <laughs> huh. yeah I, I came this far i'm not i'm not stopping anytime soon and, and of course and of course and the thing in godfrey's case and and this is true too in the in the in the heffernan case the heffernan case again which is another the other one of the other cases of shooting in the film you know five years later just last month chief newfeld announced that the result of that investigation um that it's not that it's resolved just that it would be advancing to a professional conduct hearing and it took five years just to say now we're going to advance to the next stage at which point i'll point out that the officer in question resigned from the police department knowing that this was coming and in alberta which may be the only jurisdiction in the country he's able to now leave with a clean record and if he wants to go work at a different police department potentially he can do that which is i think should be disturbing to uh, to everyone involved and I'll add that, uh, you know, in the question, it's, it's, it's the complaint process. But again, in tandem, you know, Godfrey, you know, with, again, no rectification, no sort of justice, no address to these cases, uh, you know, felt compelled to file a civil suit. Those are still ongoing. There's, you know, this is years and years and years of people's lives that get, um, that get sucked into this. And again, uh, for a, uh, a process that was intended to be, uh, you know, the complaint process dealt with quite quickly. I just think it's, oh, my God. And, and the cost, again, the cost here. You can... There's a whole judicial system going on with these complaints that's parallel to the existing one. If we, I mean, the numbers are opaque, but we're talking huge amounts of resources that are going into this. And we really have to be asking the question of why. Uh, I will offer very quickly that one of the potential answers here is to, and this is based on the recommendation of the Alberta Association of of Chiefs of Police, is to civilianize these um, professional standards departments at police services, that these should not be uh, handled internally by police. It's a classic situation, it would seem, of police policing the police. Why should they be adjudicating their own complaints? This needs to be done on a civilian basis, and whether or not it's, um, you know, it's done on a per department or if it's a provincial basis or what that looks like, but there has to be a way forward. And again, if all we even do is listen to the chiefs of police, um, you know, there are there are obvious directions to go in and to improve the situation. So it's a question now, is there going to be a political will uh, and public pressure to make that happen. And I think in my case, um, they should have charged Lindsay like they did in the in the Daniel Howard case. Because in my case, instead of, instead of charging him criminally and taking this guy to court and you know dealing with him, they charge him internally, which means they can keep dragging it on. And I think that we should stop. And um, there's a loophole that allows officers to resign before you know any any disciplinary hearing or anything like that. And that needs to be fixed. So even if the officer resigns, nothing would happen after that? No. So they resign and that's it? Yeah. No criminal record. And that's the loop I'm talking about. It needs to be closed. And we'll point out too that in Godfrey's case, 
And again, you know, we've requested information and we haven't gotten what we've requested for from the Calgary Police Service. But uh, Constable Ben Denockley, who was one of the officers uh, that that uh, interacted with Godfrey in the per- first place, that detained him and drove him, gave him this, again, urban starlight tour, as it's been called. He kidnapped me. He didn't detain me. He kidnapped well, me. This is the question. It doesn't. He didn't indicate. There's no indication that he he chartered Godfrey, uh, which would be again a. Uh, uh, it's hard from a legal perspective to see that as anything other than a kidnapping. If I show up and put you in my van and drive you somewhere else, I mean, you know, what's that? Um, that officer Denockley, we've uh, heard has we've been told he had resigned from the Calgary Police Service uh, in recent months, and we don't know the context. Uh, we've asked for clarification whether or not. Uh, he whether where the complaint process against him because of course in Godfrey's case it's not just the one officer who's included in these complaints so we've asked whether or not uh, it was you know where where things are at with the complaint process and whether or not that was a factor in his resignation and we do not know the answer to that but I do think that uh, that would be information that would be uh, relevant and important to know well thank you very much for this documentary and for shining a light on some pretty serious issues it's called above the law and where can we see it It'll be broadcasting on uh, CBC on July 11th, uh, this Saturday at 8 p.m. local time across the country. You can also catch it on CBC Gem and online. Well, thank you so very much, and I wish you all the very best. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thanks for having us. I'm Kathy Sabokin, and you've been listening to Moment of Truth, and you're listening to my guests, Ade Namiche. Mark Serpa-Francoeur and Rabiner Uppel, and their documentary is called Above the Law. We'll be back after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And of course, anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, Stephen Fonnier is uh, the Director of Northern and Indigenous Studies at the Conference Board of Canada. Uh, we're here to talk about, uh, with Stephen, Indigenous Entrepreneurs on the Rise. Uh, first, Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, uh, David. It's uh, great to be here. So, Stefan, if you don't mind me asking off the top, what does a director of Northern and Indigenous Studies do at the Conference Board of Canada? Well, uh, we're actually, our group at the Conference Board is called uh, the Northern and Indigenous Communities Group. Mm. Uh, But what we do, uh, you've captured it largely in the studies uh, um, Mm. uh, component there that you just kind of highlighted. What we do is uh, conduct research. That's uh, sort of fundamentally our our kind of main um, area of work, so quantitative and qualitative research. And, of course, we focus largely on... um, the uh, the issues that are confronting northern and indigenous communities, but we use sort of the, the the notion of communities also broadly. So it's also about other groups and organizations and whatnot that have interests um, uh, that have work um, uh, across uh, northern and remote Canada, and we also convene. Uh, so we bring folks together to do, to talk about uh, the research that we we do and to help us conduct that research. Uh, and uh, so there's a lot of convening activities, meetings, conferences, mm. summits, and things like that. And just for people that, that are not familiar with the Conference Board of Canada in general, what is the, the modus operandi of, of the Conference Board? So much like the Indigenous and Northern Communities area, we are, um, we're a think tank. So the Conference Board of Canada is a research institution. It's what a lot of people might refer to mm-hmm. as a think tank. Mm-hmm. And same thing, they, you know, as a, as a whole, we conduct quantitative and qualitative research and we, uh, we, we um, uh, engage in convening activities. And the purpose is to move decision-making forward 
uh, especially at the executive level, but also down through to uh, the grassroots level, we hope, uh, but try to move decision-making forward in Canada around key issues, inform policy development, um, and so on. Okay, great. Uh, thanks for that. Um, now, also, when you say north, northern, you know, communities, northern uh, Canada, what, what does that mean to you? How do you define that? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, because we have... Uh, a relatively unique understanding of the North, and that's based, again, on all the different organizations we work with, so public, private, Indigenous, uh, not-for-profit, academic. Um, they, they, they fund a lot of the research work that we do, so we try to work with them in terms of addressing the issues based on their interests. And in terms of those interests, the North, for, for us and for those organizations, comes well down into the provinces. Hmm. So it's basically the northern extents of all of the provinces outside of the Atlantic provinces, with the exception of Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, because Labrador and Nunatsiavut uh, are included. Hmm. Uh, but the north of the uh, the rest of the provinces uh, are in our definition of the north, and then of course so are the the territories. Mm. So, like like physically, if you're looking at a map, like down the bottom of James Bay, or how, how, like. Yeah, even lower than that, actually. Oh, yeah. So the line, if you want to, uh, you know, look at Ontario, mm -hmm. um, the line would cut across basically the north shore of Lake Superior. Okay. It, Sudbury just barely misses the line. Mm -hmm. um, it, it cuts across just sort of north of Sudbury. But yeah, so even further south than, uh, mm. than sort of the base of James Bay there. Yeah, it's interesting to get that definition because everybody has, I think, a different idea of what north means, you know. Uh, Canada is such a vast country and, you know, some people might be thinking north is Nunavut, you know, and, and not coming down any further than that. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's actually something that we confront in terms of our work all the time. Most mm. people do think it's the territories, mm. but I, you know, our the logic I guess behind this, and and you know, the logic that that drives our, you know, our, our clients and members and the organizations we work with to to understand the North uh, in the way I just described it is that you know, there, there, frankly, there, there's probably more in common in some ways with, for instance, Northern Ontario uh, and or Northern Manitoba in terms of the fly-in remote communities there with Nunavut than there is between Yukon, which has only one flying community in the entire territory in Nunavut. So, uh, so in many ways, there's a lot of commonalities between the Norse, northern extents of our provinces and, and places like Nunavut and the Northwest Territories. Yeah, I'm glad you described that because, because most people would not consider that, that there is that connection. And, and, and that's why I'm glad we're talking about the remoteness and that uh, the fly-in communities. Uh, again, uh, people may not understand that that uh, that c does come into the provinces, uh, and there are a lot of fly-in communities that still don't have access. Uh, maybe in the winter time, with uh, with frozen uh, lakes, uh, or or maybe uh, those kind of things. But um, yeah, as you say, a lot of remoteness. Now, entrepreneurs in the north, in indigenous entrepreneurs in specifically. Um, on the rise, you, you, you're finding that there's a rise in entrepreneurship, uh, specifically with Indigenous uh, people in the North? Yes, absolutely. We've been seeing a rise in terms of Indigenous entrepreneurship for quite a few years now. Well, um, the 2016 census, the last census there, um, or sorry, uh, yeah, the previous census highlights um, that trend quite well, but it started before then. And um, yeah, we're, we're not only seeing an increasing um, sort of increasing participation in entrepreneurship on the part of Indigenous uh, people, but also increasing interest in participating in entrepreneurial kind of endeavors. So, uh, so yeah, that was sort of the, you know, the, the, 
the point that that uh, was of interest to us in terms of launching the the research that we recently undertook on this on this topic. Do, do you have any sense of why there is an increase that that you're seeing at this point in time? Uh, yep, we there there are basically three sort of reasons, and that was one of the the two kind of main research questions uh, coming back to what we do at the conference board uh, <laughs> research. So one of the two research or you know questions that really kind of underpin this was what are the reasons mm. for this? Why do we see this this uptake? Um, particularly at a time too, when for the rest of uh, you know the country, in terms of non-indigenous people, there's actually uh, th- there hasn't been a concomitant rise. So this is unique to mm. to indigenous uh, uh, groups and people. So there are three reasons that really kind of jumped out. Uh, the first one was financial reasons, and and it's a pretty simple uh, explanation. It's really you know when there are no other options available as is unfortunately often the case within that northern remote context, especially those flying communities we're referring to. Individuals will often look to generate income or tend to to look to generate income and and find financial security uh, through entrepreneurship. So owning and running a business can, you know, can be an opportunity to employ uh, not not only yourself, but others within the community and, and in effect securing sort of a broader set of livelihoods. But that's an interesting reason. And it does highlight, again, sort of the, the gaps, the social inequalities, the lack of opportunity that these can, communities often need to face. Um, so that's that's one of the main reasons. There, there are two others. One was a per, uh, personal agency uh, and reasons of self-determination is how we kind of frame um, that second set of reasons. So, so that's really about choosing one's own path. Um, you know, entrepreneurship gives people the personal autonomy to take part in the economy in a variety of, of ways. They can apply their own skills, their knowledge, their interests and talents with, uh, with a way of making a living. And again, this kind of sort of stands in opposition, in a sense, to what, um, what is typically available um, within that Northern Road Com- that text in terms of employment to people. So when there is employment, it's often uh, in government, uh, local government, sometimes mm-hmm. regional government, and then also uh, in the natural resource sector. And of course, there are other sectors, but those are the two prominent ones. Uh, and a lot of folks aren't interested in, in going down the, that mm-hmm. road. And they, they often, I think, see or some folks see that as almost an imposed mm-hmm. um, set of opportunities for employment. And so, again, entrepreneurship offers this, uh, this chance at, uh, at pursuing a career that's a lot more meaningful and where folks can, can pursue their own interests and, and leverage their talents. And then the final reason is community and culture. So um, I think that one sort of uh, speaks for itself, but entrepreneurship can obviously provide an opportunity for people to make a good living in a way that also allows them to, uh, to practice their culture. And it can pro- provide a way of, of reconnecting um, individuals and their communities to culture. Uh, and or to, sh- you know, to share and raise awareness about culture and trad- traditional practices through business opportunities with outsiders, with, uh, with folks from, from elsewhere. Mm. You know, uh, something comes to mind when, when you're talking about those, the reasons behind this. Uh, and if I'm, I'm not mistaken, I think a lot of Indigenous people, or people that, that uh, I've associated with, uh, have a strong sense of that desire to, uh, to be uh, to be entrepreneurs, to, to do the, to you know, uh, carve their own path, sort of, and 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 create that for themselves. I think that that's a fair uh, claim. I mean, obviously, it's a it's a very general one, but mm. I, I, you know, certainly in our work through the through uh, through the conference board, through the the Indigenous Northern Communities area uh, across the country, you, you do hear that. Um, you know, one of the better stories I heard not too long ago um, was really about uh, the Clinket out in. Um, uh, uh, the Yukon and 
and north uh, northwestern BC there, um, and this long history of 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 you know trading and engaging mm. what they would refer to you know in terms of contemporary language as entrepreneurial activities, and so they really sort of highlight that point you know that we we come from a long tradition of mm. of entrepreneurs. Um, so, you know, business and, and entrepreneurship mm. comes quite naturally to us. And when I say us, of course, I'm, I'm referring to, to the Clinkit. Um, and that's not, that's not you know, um, the sole purview of the Clinkit. It's uh, you hear that story in, in different regions across the country. So, yeah, I think, I think that there, there's something to that, that, there, that entrepreneurship, you know, in many ways may be something that has historic or, you know, historically been a part of, uh, indigenous cultures in different parts of the country. Um, they'll probably not refer to it, obviously in those terms, uh, but it does come naturally to folks uh, as a result of that history now. The other thing comes to mind is, uh, is that I, I think, um, again, uh, from my own experience uh, from the Six Nations community, uh, a lot of people don't want to leave their home community uh, to go f find employment. They want to stay in their home community. Uh, thereby, uh, if there are limitations in, in terms of employment, then it comes back to the fact that, well, if if the, if work isn't gonna, if I'm not gonna go to work, I have to bring the work to me. And <laughs> one way to do that is maybe uh, to be an entrepreneur and create your own your own work for yourself somehow. And you're absolutely right. That's one of the things that uh, the research found was exactly that. So for when we talk about community and culture as that sort of th third reason for pursuing entrepreneurship. Mm. Um, that is absolutely a part of that that story is that folks are looking for ways to stay in community uh, to be able to you know remain with family and friends and to, and still to make a living uh, and again within that northern world context when uh, there are not uh, when there's not much in the way of other options uh, entrepreneurship is an obvious uh, mm. sort of place to to gravitate to so right. absolutely that's that's something that came out in the research. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in those coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Also check out our SoundCloud and also our website at ELMNTFM, uh, yes, .ca. And uh, you can see all the things that we're doing uh, via social, social media as well as check out our, our previous interviews and uh, find out more about uh, the, the people that work here, the on-air on personalities, etc. Uh, speaking of personalities, uh, the person I have with me right now on the show, Stephen Fonnier, he is the Director of Northern and Indigenous Studies at the Conference Board of Canada. He's our guest here on A Moment of Truth right now. We're talking about Indigenous entrepreneurship on the rise and uh, in north, remote and northern uh, Canada. Uh, Stefan, one of the things that, that also come to mind when we think about this, you mentioned a way, you know, entrepreneurship is a way of making a good, a good living. However, it, it comes at a cost. The cost is it's a lot of work. It, it, you, you know, you, you're on your own. Uh, nobody's there to, to you know, you're not relying on a paycheck. You have to make your own paycheck. Absolutely. Um, and again, you know, often within the context of northern remote communities, there's uh, additional kind of challenges that you wouldn't typically see uh, in more southern uh, locations around the country, and especially in urban southern locations. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it can be a, it can be quite challenging, it can be uphill battle and, and a lot of work. Um, and and to your point, I mean, often at the local level, too, there's not always um, a lot uh, of sort of support to draw on. Mm. Um, so in terms of skills and expertise and, and mentors and whatnot, uh, those things can be lacking at times in, in, the, in that northern remote context. So definitely a challenging road, 
but can can be a compelling road too. In terms of the kinds of work that entrepreneurs are gravitating to, you mentioned cultural uh, things um, uh, at one point, but uh, tourism is, I think, increasing in the north, or it was up until COVID hit, I think. Indigenous tourism was on the rise. We actually did a study on that not long ago as well, and by not long ago, I mean maybe a little over a year ago. And yes, Indigenous entrepreneurship uh, across the north, um, or sorry, tourism, Indigenous tourism is on, on the rise. Um, now, the other thing when we speak of the North is costs, because the North is difficult to get to. It is not cheap to fly into communities in the North. Absolutely. When we talk about the challenges that we uh, were identifying through this more recent work on entrepreneurship, um, that was one of the ones that came out sort of front and center. It's a, there's a high cost of, of doing business uh, within these communities, and it's tied exactly, as you pointed out there, into the remoteness and isolation component. The fact that there are often no roads other than sort of the winter roads or uh, sea lifts, if we're talking about the very far north up in the territories. Um, you know, people are reliant on that for moving goods if they want to move them cheaply. Otherwise, they got to fly them in. Mm. So in terms of, you know, getting product, equipment, basic business supplies, all that, absolutely, it can be very expensive and that, that creates, uh, you know, a significant and again, an unusual challenge mm. uh, in terms of uh, entrepreneurship in northern remote Canada. Of course, the other side of that is that it's expensive to get there. It's just as expensive to get back uh, as well as get things out of those communities. There are many, many talented people in the north, artists, uh, carvers, painters, uh, many, many, many kind of uh, these are all, I'm assuming, falling into the category of entrepreneurship, and um, they need to get their products to the south in order to, to reap uh, 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 the financial reward for their work. Um, what were you finding out in, in terms of that kind of, uh, you know, is there aid, is there stuff that's becoming easier for the north to get products to the south for sale? So market access is um, a part of, of work we're undertaking right now. Um, so this this piece that we're talking about here today, it's the first of two pieces. So mm. first, we wanted to kind of look at that landscape, um, you know, the northern remote landscape uh, and, and, and environment um, in terms of how it, uh, it affects and applies to Indigenous entrepreneurship, Indigenous mm. entrepreneurs. And then, uh, you know, based on sort of what we were learning about uh, operating within that environment um, and the challenges that come come with operating in that environment and so on. We wanted to look at what kinds of supports are available to entrepreneurs that 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 effectively address and whether or not they effectively address, you know, mm. are there gaps in the whole support system mm. for Indigenous entrepreneurs? So market access is a part of that. I I, I can't really speak to it with too much uh, authority right now. But yes, I mean, you, you've hit it again on another point that I think is very relevant. Ensuring that goods can be moved uh, into into other markets um, is a challenge for for a lot of the reasons again you just stated, uh, and it will be part of, of future research um, that we're well actually it's part of current research that we will be releasing uh, over the next few months. Uh, what kind of things were you seeing and hearing that maybe you found surprising in terms of uh, cre the creativity that is going into the thinking for Indigenous entrepreneurs that are looking to establish themselves uh, with uh, some kind of a business or, or, or uh, uh, supplying goods to, to the south from the north, uh, you know, that, that kind of, you know, you, you see from, you know, necessity is, is, a, great, uh, is a great teacher and, and, you know, a great way to motivate people to, to be creative. Uh, did, you, have you, did you come across anything in that regard? 
So again, that, that might be a little bit more uh, oh. in line with uh, our, our work that's coming up, but I sure. can talk a little bit about that from sort of our own experiences uh, through all sorts of research projects and, mm. and through working with groups and communities on the ground throughout the North. And you see, yeah, I'll, I just, um, you know, a lot of very interesting approaches and creative to your point approaches to uh, making things work, to, to ensuring that, you know, entre entrepreneurial endeavors do actually meet with success. Um, and so that's, you know, when we talk about entrepreneurship again, we're talking about the, the, the kind of folks you were mentioning earlier, you know, from artisans and, um, and, and, even, and even sort of hunter-gatherers and whatnot mm. in terms of sort of uh, business opportunities that can be associated with that all, all the way through to sort of more standard small businesses and up towards uh, even development corporations and whatnot. Sort of. So, but, and when you look at the, those groups as a whole, there's all sorts of interesting things going on. And again, uh, maybe to highlight sort of uh, what's going on in Northwestern Canada there. I mean, in Yukon, for instance, uh, we see a lot of creativity in folks and organizations playing to the strengths of, of either their communities um, or their talents and or, you know, even their location. So uh, an example that always jumps out for me is uh, Carcross Tagus First Nation in, in, in Yukon. They, um, they went down a road where they decided to um, build mountain biking trails. And they actually used youth <laughs> to build these trails, interestingly, mm. from around <laughs> the area. Um, and now th those trails have become um, uh, sort of sought out all around the world because they're, they're, they've been voted uh, among the best mountain biking trails uh, literally in the world. So, and uh, associated with that was sort of a, a whole bunch of entrepreneurial activity that, that kind of coincided. So, you know, the town sort of built up kind of a cultural center with a, a fair amount of retail, small retail sort of shops setting up. And, and they take advantage of obviously folks coming into the area for mountain biking reasons, but also folks coming up uh, or in, I should say, from Skagway in Alaska, mm. uh, who are up on the tourism, uh, or sorry, on the, um, on the, uh, uh, the, you know, the ships, mm. uh, sorry, coming up from, um, from Southern, uh, right. uh Southern like cruises, parts of the country like the there, sort of BC and, 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 and Seattle, um, so, so cruise ships, uh, yeah, the cruise I ships to right. say, yep. and they'll come in and, and they'll actually come in as far as, um, as Carcross Tagish and, and then, you know, uh, contribute fairly significantly to that local economy through all of those retail sort of uh, uh, businesses and whatnot. So that's just one example, mm. you know, others playing to their strengths again and, 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 and trying to, and this is true in Northern Ontario, it's true all over, frankly, uh, Northern remote Canada, where there's natural resource um, opportunities and projects, uh, you know, folks, despite some folks not wanting to be a part of that that sort of sector other you know a lot of indigenous entrepreneurs are quite savvy and shown themselves to be very successful in terms of taking advantage of the supply chains mm. associated with that sector and and the business opportunities there the procurement opportunities there mm -hmm. well that what a great example to give <laughs> I, uh, yeah mountain biking uh, i can just see the that landscape uh, being Perfect for, for that kind of thing. So, well, yeah, great idea on their part. Fabulous. Yeah. Have, have you had the pleasure to travel north? Yeah, I, I, yes, absolutely. In, in various places? <laughs> no, <more>. Yes, <laughs> I, I, yes, I spent quite a bit of time sort of uh, in the north of the provinces and up in the territories, mm. uh, uh, especially through my current career, but also as a kid, actually. Mm. Oh, really? Um, for, for Yeah, just for personal and family reasons, uh, hiking and uh and climbing, I used to climb when I was younger. So, oh, nice. That's great. Yeah. Well, this kind of falls right in line for you. Then, in in some ways, you you have a lot of familiarity with the territories. 
Pardon the pun. Yeah, a fair amount. I mean, I don't want to (laughs) overstate that, but yeah, definitely uh, have some some familiarity with the territories. Um, You you know, uh, I had the pleasure of going up a couple of times years ago uh, up to uh, Iqaluit. I was there for about a week, and then I was in, um, if you know where Akhviat is, uh, uh, up on the, uh, just above Churchill, way up there in, in Nunavut. Yep, absolutely. And uh, it was a week a week there, and it was nice to go in, in two different times of the year, uh, November. So it was getting into winter. I say getting into winter because one day I went outside uh, on this beautiful morning, uh, the sun shining, and I face, face froze in like 30 seconds, and I ran back in, and I went, geez, how cold is it out there? And they said, minus 44. And I went, minus 44. And they and they all looked at me like I was strange. And they said, what? It's not even, <laughs> winter hasn't even started yet. What are you complaining about? So, and then in the summer uh, in uh, Akviat, uh, June, and then there was still snow, uh, you know, six feet high, you know, on the banks and things. But within a week, it melted very quickly. And it was interesting to be able to see, you know, both that. And also, uh, you know, I was there for the summer, so got to see um, it in, in, you know, land of the midnight sun kind of thing, as well as mm-hmm. the winter with the sh- very short days. And it's interesting to see that because it gives you a different sense of, uh, of that reality, you know, when you can experience it and, and get a sense of what that, what that life is like. No, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, and I think that, yeah, that's well put. Uh, and again, I mean, that's something again that you don't obviously get to experience in, in other locations uh, around this country, but also in many other countries. I mean, a lot of, I think, interest in Northern Mo Canada doesn't just come from from our domestic uh from domestic sources from from here in Canada, uh, there's a especially in the far north. There's a lot of interest uh, coming from other countries around mm. the world, mm. um, uh, and unfortunately, right now for for entrepreneurs involved in the tourism industry, um, that that interest is being significantly uh, undermined, as you, as you would imagine mm. from COVID and the mm. fact that folks aren't traveling right now. So, it's actually a pretty challenging time. Sure, um, and uh, hopefully we see. Uh, supports uh, that are, I mean, there are supports coming to play, but, you know, uh, let's hope that they work and let's hope that uh, they're robust enough to to help um, um, support the Uh, entrepreneurs as they work through what is a challenging time right now. I I think it'll be interesting to see once the infrastructure allows for a a much better uh, internet connection for people in the North as well, to see how that will affect uh, affect, uh, entrepreneurship in, in the North. Um, as we all know, it's, it's difficult up there in many of the communities. No, uh, you hit on, again, uh, a really important point. It's um, uh, connectivity, uh, you know, good, good internet, high-speed internet, as we know, is, is, uh, is, is pivotal. Mm. Uh, or I think most of us would consider it to be pivotal in terms of being able to function as a business and be competitive as a business in today's uh, world. Right. Uh, and bandwidth connectivity in many communities can be quite poor. So it's just yet one more challenge that uh, a lot of um, entrepreneurs in northern remote communities uh, need to deal with, need to find ways around, need to be creative in terms of how they how they address it. So, yeah, absolutely, connectivity is uh, a big consideration on the entrepreneurship front. Uh, Stefan, anything we haven't touched on that you think is important to mention in this in this uh, in this endless topic before we end uh, finish our conversation? No, I mean, again, I just think, uh, you know, for us uh, and the work that we were doing, it was, uh, I think it's just important to acknowledge that this, uh, that this context is really challenging, but at the same time, folks are 
uh, are having success. Um, and again, it, it plays into that sort of creativity, that that's that strength-based sort of approach to uh, to trying to pursue these kinds of opportunities. Uh, but at the same time, we I think we need to acknowledge how challenging that environment is. And 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 again, our next piece will look at this. But what do we need to be doing then to help support entrepreneurs within that context? Uh, I think that's sort of the key question at this point. Great, Stefan. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. We thank you for joining us on Moment of Truth today. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been very. Uh, I hope other people have enjoyed hearing about this and and sort of getting their eyes looking to the north there uh, and and thinking about that. You know, the other thing that comes to mind is when I was up there, I saw a map of Canada. What was interesting, and that's the other thing that you don't get a sense of, is 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 how the how Northerners perceive the country and the world, because they look at it very differently. Because it was a map of Canada, but it was from the north looking south. If you, oh, if, totally, yeah. You know, and when you think about the north, you know, uh, the north of our country is again. If we use the line that we use at our uh, at the Conference Board of Canada uh, mm. to define the north, I mean that's four fifths of our land mass. Mm. So while our population is is sort of definitely concentrated down here, the land mm-hmm. is up there, so to speak. You yeah. know, and, and yep. yeah, it gives you a very different perspective. Right, Stephen Fournier, he is the director of Northern and Indigenous Studies at the Conference Board of Canada. Has been uh, our guest and my guest here on Moment of Truth today. And we thank you, our listeners, for uh, tuning in as well, right here on Moment of Truth. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.